How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. Welcome to Box Office Pulp. Tonight, very special October commentary, An American Werewolf in London. I have toyed with doing Paris, but I think you guys would have been pissed and like just mutinied. No, I would have loved that. Really? That would have been an exciting challenge. (laughs) Never mind, scrap the plans. We're doing something different, boys. Go find Paris. No, we're we're not (laughs) doing Paris. Paris. Please please don't leave the show. Everyone at home. Please do not leave. We're we're not doing an American Marvel from Paris. At least not now. We'll warn you. We'll warn you. Well, I think that's fair. I think that's very fair. Just halfway through this, we switch to American Werewolf in Paris. It's Wolfen, actually. We're doing Wolfen. <laughs> we agreed no references to Wolfen. I'm a liar. Deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I'm also your host, Cody. Joining me today, uh, we have Mike Napier. Say hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. Works every time. It's a classic. MB. Oh, boy. Oof. Careful with that one. It's an antique. Uh, we also have MB. MB, say hello. Hello. Yes, dance, my puppets. And lastly, we have James. Speak now, You child. told me Speak. to do nothing. That's true. We were doing a Simon Says and you passed. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I'm host now. Congratulations. And I just turn into dust and I go away in the wind. And tonight, we're doing a bop and a movie for the John Landis 1981 classic, An American Werewolf in London, starring David Naughton and the delightful Griffin Dunn. I like your Robert Osborne. We should do that all the time. Yeah, that was really out of tone with the podcast. <laughs> it, was, it was very professional. I didn't like it. God, I, mean, I, I liked it, but not for 10 us. seconds, and I drove it right into the ground. <laughs> uh, small, small detour. I promise it's small. But I watched AMC for, like, the first time in apparently a year the other weekend, and they had a different host come out because, obviously, these things change. You mean and DCM? It was, it was, uh, yes, sorry. And it was it was just super weird not, not having it be the same person as Ben for my entire life. Well, Ben Makowitz is terrible in addition to that, so... <laughs> It wasn't. It wasn't him. It was. A, it was a woman. They have met. They have lots of different people on there. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't recognize her, and I haven't 
I don't have cable, so I don't get to check it out very often. I was just flabbergasted, like, no, this has to stay the same as always, even if he's dead. Bring him alive. Frankenstein. Also, Tom Mankiewicz is a perfectly fine person because he may get on the show one day. We don't know. (laughs) Tom Mankiewicz? You mean the dead screenwriter? Sure. Why not? I don't know. It's ten o'clock. It's ten o'clock at night. And it's <laughs> this Halloween. We should have probably Spooky mentioned scary that. Skeletons. I said October. I didn't know when you were putting it out. This is our Halloween commentary. Happy Halloween, everybody! Get your spook on. So seriously, that we're about to start the commentary. Uh, get your Franken Crunch or your blueberries. Uh, whatever you do. I mean, even if it's like Gushers that happen to have like a blob from outer space theme to them, that's cool. Go and grab Get mauled by a supernatural creature out in the woods and then turn into a lycanthrope in the, you know, moonlight. Please hashtag us if you take pictures. Uh, we're on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at Box Office Pulp. We definitely want you getting mauled by lycanthropes to be on our page. Yeah, detail oh. your horrible transformation into a wolf creature. I want to get this trending. Hashtag Bot Bewares the Moon. <laughs> I like it. Can we get that happening? No. Uh, no. I mean, we could try, but oh, it what's would be the point of being alive then? I ask myself every day. To be fair, we don't have to listen to Cody because, as detailed, James is the host now. It's true. Yeah, I own all of your asses. Well, he went zero to 80s businessman very quickly. <laughs> this is what happens when you give people power. Are you going to piss on our shoes like Jack Nicholson in the movie Wolf, which, was all, which also <laughs> is about a werewolf? <laughs> <laughs> Could that be our theme next Halloween? We just do all the wolf movies? At once. We play them over top of each other and just see what happens. This is a stupid podcast. It is a stupid podcast. Let's get on with the commentary. That's probably less dumb. I mean, one would help. So, but for everyone at home, if you've never heard of the concept of a commentary before, we're <laughs> going to watch An American Werewolf in London while talking over it. Uh, if you want to join us, I like and how also you're being so condescending to the audience. <laughs> you always explain I... this like you're Starman, by the way. <laughs> Maybe I am. <laughs> so we're going to do a countdown. A lot, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to do a countdown. We're going to start the movie. We're going to start talking over it. If you want to join us, just when the countdown hits zip, uh, hit the play button on your DVD, Blu-ray player, whatever technology you run, VCR, I don't give a shit, and. Uh, Watch along. Or you can listen to this solo. I don't give a fuck. Like, it's your life. I'm not going to try it on you. I hope you're watching on VHS. That would actually be kind of delightful. Let us know. Hashtag Bob Beware's the move. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have so many disgruntled Moon Knight fans not knowing what the fuck that Twitter <laughs> <laughs> They're just going to be happy assholes. that they'll be interacting with someone new. Are we all ready? Um, um, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. You seem unsure, but okay. <laughs> yeah! My Jeff Bridges yes is in full effect. Uh, James, you're, you're leading the show now, you do the countdown. <laughs> I have All to do right. the countdown, because I'm the one pressing play. We went over this in the last commentary. One of these days is going to work, and James can get to do it. Then I have to time it with this count. We're not doing that. It's <laughs> not immediately starting off fucked up. <laughs> this is literally the exchange we had on one of the last commentaries. One of these times is going to work, and you're just not going to be vigilant, and then it's it's going to be hilarious. <sighs> one, two, three. Universal. So Star right Wars. off the bat here, I was a little surprised we decided to go with this for a commentary, 
because for years it's always been suggested that we do the remake of the Wolfman. So I figured that would be our first werewolf commentary. Well, I believe we would also get an excellent commentary out of uh, the Wolfman, just because that's such an underrated modern gem. I also feel like it would be kind of weird to make that our first like big universal horror movie. And since I don't I don't quite see us like going in and doing like the invisible man or something. I got to feel like this is a nice uh this is the most bop friendly uh, entry into the old canon. Jumping back to the idea of this being a universal monster movie. While technically true, for some reason it never enters into my universal monster head canon. And I, I don't yeah, it's think, weird. Like Universal does it either. Like <laughs> there's going to be fifty thousand different Dracula reboots while they try and put together a, a shared universe, but they'll never try and do an American Werewolf. Well, uh, we, I, I believe we talked about this once. I want to go to the alternate universe where we get the '80s version of the Universal Monster Universe with Frank Langella as Dracula. David Naughton as the Wolfman, and Chevy Chase as the Invisible Man. <laughs> I'd pay money for that. That's a shared universe I would not mind seeing. What I love is they still occupy, they would still occupy the same basic um, stereotypes they did in the Universal movies. Like, the Wolfman would still be sad and depressed and trying to kill himself. The Invisible Man would still be insane, and Dracula would still be sexy. <laughs> Ooh, even more so now. Is it, and, is... and before we get too far away from talking about the Wolfman remake, it blew my mind on the special features that Rick Baker had to go to the studio and be like, hey, I, I wouldn't mind doing the special effects for your remake. Just, uh, just remember me, Rick Baker, your friend. Okay, bye. Like, the idea that they were going to do a werewolf movie and not have him on, like, their to-call list blows my mind. And then paint That's over a... most of his effects. Yeah. yeah, that is about the most respect that any practical effects man gets these days. I was thinking about this in terms of this movie. Like, how do you guys classify werewolf movies just... In terms of a subgenre of movie, like people have classifications for vampire movies and stuff like that, but werewolf movies to me have three distinct classifications. Like I think of them as like you have the classical serious take on the on lycanthropy or werewolfism and stuff like The Wolfman and uh, a couple of other films like more of the classic, like, old-school werewolf movies. Then you have the deconstructionist-type werewolf movies, like Ginger Snaps is one, where it kind of takes the idea and does something to kind of flip it on its head and say something more about the concept. And then there's a third classification where it's just they're the CGI grunt or henchman of, of a movie, where it's it's not really made important that it's a werewolf. It's just kind of... They needed a werewolf for it, like in the Underworld movies, or like even something like Twilight, or well, it's just they're kind of incidental. Well, it's fascinating how werewolf is kind of the redheaded stepchild of the monster archetypes, despite the fact that it's 
probably the most prevalent and versatile. And like you just said yourself, especially whenever you look at how pervasive the idea of the werewolf is in stories. If you discount, like, if you take away the literal transforming into a wolf thing, I mean, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a werewolf story. The Hulk is a werewolf. That is a very basic archetype. Even the vampire, you've turned, you're turned into a vampire by another vampire, so there's that transference there. It's kind of, weirdly, the werewolf, as it's become known today, because obviously it had different meaning years and years and years ago. Um, In ancient days, it had a completely different meaning because it was just kind of, lycanthropy was used to describe uh, insane people, and it was kind of the other version of calling somebody a witch. It's like, uh, they're a lycanthrope. He's a panther. Exactly. But, like, werewolves are just kind of, they're the amalgamation of all of the classic horror movie tropes, uh, like, horror movie creature tropes made into one, which is, I think, what kind of makes it really cool when you look at the Universal canon, because the Wolfman came out Nearly a decade after Dracula and Frankenstein originally came out and managed to take what was cool about them and then sort of – not that I think The Wolfman is a better movie than either of those. I I think it's better than Dracula, but I think it managed to take the tropes that were established in those movies and kind of mix them into a finer, better stew. Uh, Oh, definitely. When it comes to – kind of the transformation allegory that goes through uh, like hide and dr- vampirism and, and werewolves and stuff. They, they all stem from the same basic um, juncture of human psyche, but they're, they split off into different directions, which I've always found very interesting. Uh, vampirism and werewolfism would be closest but uh, and but a lot of ways vampirism kind of stays more human, while werewolfism as an allegory tends to. There, there's a reason the Wolfman, you know, when, until you get to like the CGI fests, tends to be uh, more sad but more vicious, because it's all about that inner bestial na- nature and how it completely can devastate. Landis himself um, kind of compared the original Wolfman, the Lon Chaney version, that Talbot, like, it was almost a form of cancer, but instead of killing him, it was killing everyone that he loved around him. And he couldn't and stop it. Like, like what you're talking about with the vampire and werewolf distinction, I think it's always been a matter of, Vampirism is taking away one's humanity while keeping them human. Werewolfism is basing them down to their instinctual, like what's already there inside of them, like the the dark side of humanity. Very much like Jekyll and Hyde, but way more on a base, almost ancient level, where it's reducing, it's almost reducing you to something that is primordial and just like the the inner nature of humankind is just as they exist as a beast. 
Hyde is all about reveling in your shitty nature, essentially. Werewolfism, I, I think, is interesting because, I mean, vampirism plays this way too, but it tends to be more seductive as well. It's purely forced upon you. Which I've always found to be an unexplored uh, area because werewolf movies just don't really exist that often. I mean, the reason it took a decade for this to get made. Yeah, because before this, you really only had, like, Hammer tried one werewolf movie, and that didn't really pan out after they were starting to redo all the big monsters, and they didn't do, obviously they couldn't do The Wolfman because that was directly universal property. Uh, whereas Dracula and Frankenstein were based on novels, and they could take from those. But Hammer was really the only one to try with those tropes and really mess around with those archetypes of characters. And when they couldn't do it, it was just kind of seen as like, well, nobody can do it. So it's interesting to look at this and kind of see someone finally getting the chance to do a werewolf movie. And what is, I mean, back for whenever this movie was made, it was considered the modern idea of what would the werewolf movie be. And one thing that I've kind of struggled with in watching this, because I only saw this for the first time not too long ago, I don't know where I would classify this movie. I don't know if I'd classify it as a deconstructionist movie or a classical werewolf movie. Well, that's that's what I that's what I love about um, American Werewolf is it it functions as a soft deconstruction, not of a werewolf movie, but of horror, but not of a kind of classic horror, but not in a necessarily deconstructionist way. The comedy tone kind of comes from that. Uh, it's like, like Landis has talked about, like as far as it being labeled a comedy, he's like, no, it's just, I wanted a straight horror movie. The comedy just kind of comes because it's an amazing combination of a classical horror film. Like, you even just see in, like, scenes like this. You're combining these weird uh, anachronistic uh, things about the UK, really. Like, you see all these, um, at the time, modern uh, people. You see punks walking around and all this other stuff. And then you see these people who would be right at home in a movie from the thirties uh, of just a bunch of stereotypes that don't actually exist. And the comedy coming from it that feels satirical, it's more or less, it's happening because those two tones, that realism tone and the classical horror are butting up against each other. And are kind of being forced to meld. And what's happening is the movie, like people's, the realistic people's reactions are comedically based because they're reacting to how ludicrous a horror movie is. But the horror movie is happening in full force. And that's what I love about the snap back and forth. You have these really snappy joke scenes that are still natural, but they're snappy joke scenes. 
And then, you know, suddenly, um, you know, Griffin Dunn's being fucking horribly mauled whilst yelling, it's killing me, it's killing me, and it's brutal. Uh, That's what I love about the complete, like, smash cut to credits at the end. What fascinates me is not only is that kind of a, uh, is that fascinating from, like, a generational standpoint where you, like, with the late 70s and early 80s, you really saw the last little bit of, like, the, the early 20th century peeling away, finally. But that's also where movies in general were, like, this movie is the perfect crossroads between old Hollywood and what was beginning to take place in the early 80s. Wow. There's two completely warring sensibilities that, for just a couple of years, were still overlapping. Going back to what you were saying earlier, uh, Mike, something that I actually didn't take into consideration with this is that you think of the original Lon Chaney Wolfman, and a lot of people do take that as just straight horror because that's what it's meant to be. It's made as a brand. It's part of the Universal Monsters canon. But I didn't really think about it until you mentioned kind of what Landis was going for in that the Wolfman is also a love story oh, on yes. top of being a monster movie like it's it's actually more of a love story i would say than something like frankenstein or dracula because it deals specifically with talbot you know falling in love with the girl at the same time that he's becoming a werewolf tragic story and i find it fascinating that this movie kind of does take that element as well where it does have a love story but at the same time it has an extra layer with the comedy but it's still functioning kind of in the same rules and the same wheelhouse that the original Wolfman did in that it's it has something else going on, but it still has all of the classic horror Wolfman or uh, werewolf aspects to it. It might lean a little bit closer to something like uh, Bride of Frankenstein, yes. where you have a lot of moments of comic relief kind of inserted in or characters specifically there to kind of lighten things or even the heavy performance of like uh uh the mad doctor in that film yeah so i I think it might be more along those lines one thing that i've always kind of liked in werewolf movies is there's two camps and this one really this film really started the trend i think well not just this film but all the ones that came out in 1981 of there being werewolf movies set in that weird no time (laughs) like if you look at the Wolfman. When does that movie take place? John Landis has gone on record as saying, "Like, what? What the fuck is this? Like, <laughs> when is it? Where weird... is it? Like, what the fuck yeah. is going on?" It's just a weird fairy tale kind of uh, amalgamation of things. So you don't really know when it is, but it just seems like some some weird like 1800s time. Yeah, because you can't look at the original Lon Chaney Wolfman and say, "Oh, well, that clearly takes place in the 30s." Because what would you have to to look at that like there's nothing there are no cars or anything like there, that there it's is just... actually cars in uh the wolfman with lon chaney which yeah. is very odd yeah he drives around a car for a little bit uh but there, there's so many scenes where it's it feels timeless all this stuff like in the european countryside just the people and everything is so steeped in made of customs that it doesn't feel like it's of a time it's, it's like very fable world yeah 
Whereas uh, the films of the 1980s, starting with this and the howling wolf, wolfen, uh, they jump into telling contemporary stories. Landis was really into the idea of, I wanted to make a serious horror film and pull it out of that weird nebulous time and make it feel kind of realistic by dropping it into the now, which was kind of revolutionary at the time for a werewolf film. Nowadays, that's what they all do. Like if a werewolf film comes out, it's not set typically back in like that weird 1800s-ish period. Uh, unless you're doing a remake of an existing property. I would personally love to see it if they did werewolves in no other weird time zones, like a 1950s werewolf movie. (laughs) No, 60s werewolf. He gets groovy. 60s wolf. Yeah. I guess technically, technically isn't Silver Bullet set in like the 50s? I want to see a movie where Leonardo da Vinci in Renaissance times (laughs) becomes a werewolf and has to use his contraptions to battle evil, but as a werewolf. You should not have said that idea out loud because people are going to steal that. Or get the stars network on the phone. <laughs> That's a real Da Vinci's demon. Hey, we're box office pulp. We'll be here all night. Thank you, folks. Hey, here's a question I've been contemplating all day, which uh, kind of plays into what you were saying there. There is very much a sense of what the modern werewolf movie is supposed to be, like pretty much started by this and the other films released around the time. So with that so clearly established, why are werewolf movies still such a non-genre? Because they, the werewolf as a genre feel as a subgenre feels very ethereal. Like it doesn't feel like it's actually a thing. And it's mostly seems to be just brought up as a joke. I, think I do many... think that stuff like the underworld movies kind of ran that into the ground or, or what? No, I think, I think studios and just a lot of people in general just see them as such C movies, even though, there's so many good ones. They just see werewolf as a concept to just be. I mean, in a world where people say vampirism was ran into the ground in film, um, I, I considering the narrow view people have werewolves, uh, I can kind of understand why no one really gives it a chance, despite it. It's. I mean, it's. It's very versatile. It's very allegorical. There's allegories all throughout this movie, for God's sake. Um, but but if you do look at a look at it just from afar, then it just it's a dude turning into a wolf or a giant wolf or a wolf person hybrid, and I think that's just kind of what a lot of people just kind of take it as face value as. And even monster movies just, in general have a hard time, like really getting any kind of steam and this is still i mean werewolf movies are monster movies they're just more um hybrid of different things uh, because they go through different storytelling means so i i just don't think anybody that's why you just have random spurts where werewolves show up or like in the underworld movies where it's just the people making them find werewolves cool so they're in the movie (laughs) <laughs> a few a of like oftentimes that. oftentimes the werewolf movies are boxed into a corner it's kind of like all shark films for a very long time essentially were jaws yeah even if it wasn't a shark if it was a killer whale same thing 
uh, for, for exorcism films, they all had to be the exorcist. That was what was successful, so that's what they did. Uh, oh, hey, hi, Frank House. Um, <laughs> for for werewolf movies, a long time, it had to kind of be the same deal. It had to be tragedy. It played out the same way very often. You know, there wasn't a good ending for a werewolf. You don't just stop being a werewolf. You succumb in the end, and you have to be killed by a loved one. And because it was on repeat, I think people lost interest in them. There's definitely tons of examples where that's not the case. They do different things. Look at something like Dog Soldiers. But people kind of have a stereotyped idea of what a werewolf movie is. So it loses impact and fan interest. And also, it's got to be hard for filmmakers. Because if you make a werewolf movie, immediately you know people are going to go in and expect a, a transformation scene. And you're always stacked up to this film. Which, yeah. how frustrating would that be? Someone does a transformation in 1981, and that's the gold standard <laughs> for several decades. And, and no matter what you do, it. you can't beat it. And no matter what you do, people are going to look at it and be like, eh, I don't know, they did it better 30 plus years ago. Like, that's going to be daunting for a filmmaker to go in and know that's what you're up against. So you either don't do the transformation, which um, I think the movie Howl, another recent werewolf movie, kind of got around. Like, the people were just already transformed to wolves when they're attacking the train. I don't know if there's a major transformation scene in that film at all, which almost feels like a cheat, but it's probably the wisest move because then you don't get negative comparisons to transformations from a, a film that's decades old. And honestly, even as a fan of horror and I love werewolves and think they're cool as shit, but uh, even just saying werewolf movie is really kitschy and kind of silly to me. So, as, like, for a horror fan to think that, and then <laughs> trying to sell that to other people, I, I can see issues. I wonder if also, but just for just with the concept of a werewolf, there's something about the specificity that kind of throws people off. Because the werewolf is a very specific monster. Yeah. You are literally turning into a wolf, a specific animal. You could do a D&D style where there's just wear everything. It's a were-bear, it's a were-owl. But I don't know if people would go for that. Like, if it's not a wolf and you transform, people are going to be confused. Well, the wolf is the least silly animal to transform it. What's wrong with were I, I love how bumbling this detective is. <laughs> And this his entire tie, scene like, is brilliant. That tie I mean, this... that like reaches down to his fly, and then the top is like to the top of his stomach is terrible. Question: Can you, do you guys agree these two detectives are the same people who solved the Doctor Fives murders? Yes, <laughs> it's it's very much that vibe, except like not randomly boring in the middle of an otherwise good film. Also, can I just say? One of the greatest ancillary characters in all of fiction is Dr. British, M.D. It's fascinating to me how useless every character in this film really is. Like, they only need, like, <laughs> really two are. characters. Everyone else is just, like, set dressing. Like, they pop in, they fill out the time, they question David, they make him question his own sanity, and then they basically, like, walk around not doing anything important. Even the doctor who goes back to the town and looks like he's unsolving conspiracy, doesn't learn anything we don't already know. Like, he doesn't reveal new information or background details. He basically, like, finds out the story we were presented originally was correct, gets back in town in time 
to get the love interest in position to see David die. That's his whole function is basically something that could easily be replaced by breaking news: werewolf downtown. Lady, get your button action. <laughs> it's kind of what great. What I love is that, yeah. It, because it just flies in the face of like every modern movie that has to have a gigantic thirty-person cast where every character has something important to do at all times. Like uh, occasionally, you just have ancillary characters who are just there. Yeah, I, feel I don't like mind. It's them. Actually, like in this movie, it actually is played to even more of an extreme where ultimately none of the characters in this incite any. It feels like none of them really incite change or any inc- or any diversion of the path that was always going to be taken by David because the the one who makes the most impact on him in terms of what he feels like he needs to do to starve off the to stave off the uh, transformation is a dead character that he's imagining. Uh, not necessarily imagining. Oh yeah, he's there. Yeah, I would I would buy into the the supernatural myth of the story. Like he's actually presented by the ghosts of the people he murders. They're just not very effective at telling him he should kill himself. No, 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 no. I I like this idea. The werewolf stuff is real, but David <laughs> is just hallucinating everything else. Like he has a medical condition. There's nothing supernatural about this at all. That's actually a good place to segue us into the quick anecdote of where this film comes from. Which was, uh, might as well bring it up since this is a commentary about American Werewolf on, in London. <laughs> uh, which was Landis was working on Kelly's Heroes. And he and, I forget who else, were the back Kelly. of the truck. <laughs> yes, Kelly. <laughs> uh, were riding around the back of a truck and saw a kind of a uh, gypsy funeral taking place where I think it was a rapist who was being buried and they were burying him standing up and wrapped in garlic and they were doing like this whole incantation around the grave so he would not rise again and Landis was struck with the idea of but what if he did and then came up to me I would not be equipped to deal with the undead coming up to me it's 1969 (laughs) So, like, they, applying the that specific... to this was interesting. Remember the specific line he had was, it was 1969, we put men on the moon that year, and this was happening. How do those <laughs> two things overlap? Which is, it just goes back to what we were saying earlier, that beautiful crossroads that's represented by this movie of the old world and the new world just clashing violently. Yeah. Well, you have that. And then you have Landis just tossing around this supernatural story in his head for years and then finally settling on an American werewolf in London because of a tax dodge. <laughs> like, I love how that just came down to math. Well, we can film this in Paris or London. I don't speak French, so London. And Wales has a lot of werewolf stuff so it's a werewolf movie well landis like he threatened to take the movie to paris because it was um uh, i think, I think they like, wanted uh, more british people in the crew they only had like four allowed no it was they, done they had, it like... was done specifically 
Um, he was not a member of whatever the British Actors like Guild is called. Uh, and Landis actually went and started scouting locations and planned to retitle the film, An American Werewolf in Paris. And that might be the most ironic thing in film history. <laughs> Do you think they knew? <laughs> or was it just an overwhelming coincidence? Like, I like the idea indie. of people making that movie saying, we will pay homage to that one weird ancillary thing. It was it was fun in the commentary hearing the actors mention, like, proposing a sequel to him and him being pissed off. Like, there will never be a sequel. Also, I love this dream sequence so much. Uh, and the, and throughout, God, that got me so many times as a kid watching this movie. Oh, Fantastic yeah. jump scare. But, uh... The the fact that Landis always goes in these dream sequences without warning, yeah, I love that quality. He's just in the middle of a dream, and by cinema rules, you don't actually know if this is like a flash forward, like next day David all of a sudden got out of the hospital. But the fact that his clothes aren't destroyed tips you off. You know there's something wrong, and then that that weird dream imagery of seeing the bed out in the middle of the woods. It's very simple, but effective. They don't have to overdo it. They don't have to oversell it. It's just that creepy, off-putting, little weird thing. And then that shock with the makeup. It's fantastic. I love what they do. People don't appreciate the um, the psychological nature of the werewolf transformation that's presented in this film with all the weird dreams, like the weird fever dreams, and just how utterly bizarre they get. I think this is the one time in a movie where I'm okay with like a dream jump scare leading into another dream jump scare. Same. It's so just visceral and startling. Because most of the time I just get annoyed when that happens. Like, God damn it, how many jump fake dreams are we going to go through? And in this one, somehow they managed to make all those jumps pay off. And I think it's because David's trying to question his sanity so much in the film, it makes sense that he wouldn't be able to tell dreams from reality. Yeah. So it's it kind of gets a, a narrative pass for me. It also gives you, like, from a practical level, gets you a great deal of action in a movie when where he doesn't really become a werewolf until, I think, over the halfway mark. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, a, it's an hour. It's actually an hour in, uh, I think, exactly, because I was looking at the time stamp for when act the actual transformation had come by because I was just so taken with, like, oh, wow, he actually hasn't transformed until now. And that's really impressive considering how character-centric this movie is. Oh, yeah, the structure... So going to things I don't think are appreciated enough about this movie. I love how methodically slow-build the film is, but still filled with all this weird horror shit. But the second the transformation hits, while it's a very short amount of time afterwards until the movie, like, you know, hits the abrupt end... It's pretty much just a roller coaster of violence until it ends. Like everything just goes to hell immediately. Like he is not, he does not get to be a werewolf for that long. Like it just goes to shit and then he dies. Spoilers. Well, he only transforms twice, I think. Yeah. Mm. This movie has very little interest in David actually being a werewolf. This is this is really the only werewolf movie I know of whose primary concern is the initial build-up to the transformation yeah. and the psychological aspect of that, which I can't believe has not been played with more in movies. Because that's where all the drama is. 
and that's something that even the original Cheney Wolfman understood to some extent, because that was more about the aftermath of the initial transformation and what that was doing to Talbot, because the Wolfman in that movie doesn't really have that much screen time at all. Also, I just want to say best use of Kermit the Frog in cinema. <laughs> I never put together why there were Nazi Wolfmen today until I was rewatching the movie and Landis mentions, you know, this movie's set in the 80s. He's like a, a mid-20s Jewish kid. He was raised up with the idea of Nazis pretty heavily ingrained in his head. So right. he kind of played in his subconscious that there would be Nazis as bad guys and then just mix in with his new wolf fears. For us, as yes. far as like the alleg- like kind of the soft allegories in the film, there's kind of something in here involving xenophobia, uh, not just from like the British to American, uh, but also like the American to the British, but also just David being Jewish, which I think is interesting. Like the whole outside, like standing out outsider thing. Oh yeah, I would. I was kind of saving this for later because it's like my one big main philosophical point about the movie. But the basic idea, you know, an American werewolf in London, that culture clash of just the American in X area, automatically you're going to have conflict. And the whole movie is built upon those kind of juxtapositions. The idea of it's it's horror, it's really scary, but it's also very funny. I think that's why you have such abrupt pieces of comedy in the movie because it's just that kind of clash that yeah. shows these things can go together. But they might not necessarily flow the way you would think, and they kind of stand out. All throughout the movie, you see moments like that, like uh, just just how old-timey British it almost feels going downtown. You know, you see the double-decker buses and the constables with their, their big hats. I don't know the proper name of those, so every British fan here probably thinks of an asshole. Uh, but there's also like scenes of David in a porno theater, which seems at odds to everything else going on. Especially considering what happens in that actual scene. Although I, I should mention that the porno theater was more or less a happy accident, since when they originally scouted it, it was just a normal theater. It showed cartoons. It, yeah, and <laughs> it became a porno theater when they got there. They were going to film it all of a sudden as a porn theater, so they had to scramble, and over like two days they filmed the porn scene so they would have something going on inside that made sense. I wish they would have kept the cartoons but just may still have a point <laughs> it works so, so much better how can we just talk about how amazing the like beyond the practical werewolf effects and obviously the transformation the decay here oh look yes. at this shit just look amazing. at that little nice bit that's around wiggling <laughs> you don't get that with cgi cgi does not wiggle well, it's just a happy accident, too. I don't think that was something they necessarily planned, but when you have flaps of skin, they jiggle. And I'm especially can like, the thing that even impresses me more is how believably he appears in his later stages, because there's a very, there's a clear through line of, like, okay, this piece degrades a little bit faster than this piece, but this piece is more decayed. This this is already kind of rotting off, and then when you see him as more the skeletal uh, zombie-like, or Kinnison, as I like to call him, <laughs> uh, when you see that version, you see, like, a very natural degradation, which I don't think any... Like, movies in general have a hard time pulling off believable corpse degradation. 
And oh, I've never they certainly seen it. tried the new mummy. <laughs> For people well, who tried. didn't waste their money seeing the new mummy, they essentially just ripped off this premise where Tom Cruise sees his dead friend several times throughout the film trying to break the mummy's curse. And his friend gets like a little bit more fucked up as the movie goes on. It's not well done. Hey, we're talking about a good movie here. I'm warning people, beware the moon and the mummy. <laughs> Hashtag bot bewares the moon. <laughs> Promotion. I do uh, just one more thing about Jack there. I love the direction that Landis gave him that he should always be very upbeat in the scene. Yes. Even though he's a corpse kind of falling apart. Another one of those weird juxtapositions where it's, you know, you're, you're dead. You're falling apart. You're damned for eternity. Cheerfully ask for some toast. Be in a fairly good mood when you tell your friend he has to kill himself. Well, that's what I love so much about this film and why I hold it as the gold standard for all horror comedies, which is there's really not any jokes in this movie. All of the humor just become just comes from the juxtaposition of tone. Yeah. Which I haven't like I've seen so few other horror comedies do like every other horror comedy is just a horror movie with a bunch of a bunch of jokes in it, which is fine and often great. But honestly, Get Out is the only other horror movie I can think of that does that same a trick of just establishing humor through tone and juxtaposition. There is hilarity in the unnerving, and all you really have to do to up the comedy is just lean into that. It's more unnerving that he's really upbeat, and that makes it funny. Well, one of the most hilarious, like, 70s movies is Jaws. <laughs> are, are you playing with your dinghy? I'm going to let that masturbation joke just hold. This is one big masturbation movie. Going back to why the porno theater, I think, worked out better. Oh, yeah, that that that's probably like one of the biggest laughs I got out of the movie was just seeing his mid transformation be in that location and how perfectly timed up that punchline was. Also, hello, old punks. <laughs> So I, this this bothers me. It probably shouldn't. How many puff vests did that guy carry around in that backpack? Because he had the red one that was destroyed. Now he's got a blue one on. Those seem like he they deflated take a lot them. Of room. <laughs> like a vacuum sealer just to get them all in there. He never knows when the flood's going to happen. <laughs> I, I'm always so impressed whenever I rewatch this at just how pleasant, like aggressively pleasant, all of the scenes between Naughton and Jenny Augeter are. Like, I'm going to be honest, I would watch a version of this movie that's just David trying to get on with his life after the death of his friend. That's, that's, he it's still great, sees it's... the zombie version of his friend pop up occasionally <laughs> and tell him to kill himself. Everything else is just a heartfelt romantic comedy. That's what's great, is Landis decides to play all this stuff as just a legitimate movie that has, doesn't have werewolves in it at, at this point. Which lures you into a, a false sense of security <laughs> leading up to the transformation. It does help that all of the actors, uh, or all the, the cast in this film, I should say, have just wonderful chemistry with each other. 
like when Jack and David are walking around, you feel like those guys are really good friends. The way that they're actually laughing at each other's jokes and can't even tell a story straight. Oh, yeah. That's and the, the magic the, of the, just letting the camera roll long after the actors think you've stopped. <laughs> yeah. And, and the romantic chemistry here works so well. I like how direct the characters are. Uh, there's not that weird coy thing going between them where one has to pretend they're not interested in the other, but eventually they turn around. Yeah, it's such a very uh, post-70s movie. Like, hey, can we fuck? Okay. Come with me to Carousel, David. <laughs> there are some kind of weird things, like when David just kisses her in the hospital for the first time that feel a little out of place, but you can roll with those punches. So and now we have the funniest sex scene in movie history. <laughs> so as a kid, I remember they played this movie all the time on Comedy Central. Yeah. And I was so confused. Obviously, like, the scene, I think, was just cut out entirely. But uh, as, as a child, I couldn't wrap my head around the idea that this was on Comedy Central because it was not funny to me as a child at all. Like, Com- comedy Central would air a lot of weird quote unquote comedies. Like I remember Doctor Strange. <laughs> Strange Love is pretty funny. Like I-, I will laugh throughout the entire thing of Strange Love. This movie though, like it took me years to realize there's a lot of comedy going on. I just I don't know if those scenes were maybe cut for television or if I just never could never associate them in my mind because I always remembered you know the werewolf going around Piccadilly Circus. I remember the guy in the uh, the tube station being murdered. I don't remember like the bedpans being stacked back together noisily. Well, when you're a well, kid, like not... the comedy aspects of horror comedies, depending on how they were, kind of go over your head. Like Scream was just like completely straightforward when I was a kid. Oh, yeah, Same yeah. with us. They're just part of that's just how that, that how those people talk. That's pretty much all it works as. <laughs> I was also very confused as a kid because our local shop go for some reason for like a year played uh, an American werewolf in Paris on their TV demos, <laughs> which one that movie had to be really heavily edited because that was, that was R rated. And why would you put that on in like a Walmart type scenario on repeat <laughs> to get people to buy your televisions? I don't think Look, it helps. More of this. <laughs> So yeah, in my mind, like I'm watching this movie on Comedy Central at home. Then when I go shopping, all of a sudden, an American Werewolf in Paris with his giant CGI werewolves running around is playing on the TV. And I'm like, are these related? Are are these the same thing? I don't get it. I'll just talk about American Werewolf in Paris for a second. But are you always fascinated to see what is essentially the werewolf from American Werewolf in London, but CGI and flying around attacking things? <laughs> it's really fucking funny. My, my, I distinctly remember that movie because that was like the biggest Fox Monday night at the movies ever. Cable loved the that movie. Was this the first movie to do the mirror jump? I doubt it. I mean, it's it's definitely like everyone does it now. It's been used thousands of times. But I'm trying to think of earlier examples. I'm sure, I'm Argento sure that's it. Italian. That's oh, cool. yeah. It's very Italian. Ironically, I was rewatching Inferno today. Just to bring that up for no reason. See, once again, why can't this just be the movie? Uh, David, you're telling you need to pal. I'm here to tell you you need to marry that girl, David. <laughs> just me and my best dead friend. 
I feel like if the whole movie was just this, the actor who played Jack like would have shot himself out of a cannon into the sun after like three weeks. All the behind the scenes material made it seem like he really did not enjoy this process at all. Which also is really funny to me because when they replaced him with a puppet in the theater, he was pissed. <laughs> so, I don't know what you want, man. What do you want? He did do the puppeteering for that, though. Yeah, that's true. Griffin Dunn's uh, comments on this movie are always hilarious because it's that wonderful combination of I really like this movie and I'm proud of it and hated every single second I was on set. Yeah. Was that story that he was like went to the bathroom in a trailer and someone took the trailer away while he was in the bathroom? No, it was it was the sheep. I think it was the uh, sheep uh, truck, wasn't it? That just drove back to London with him in the back. He had to bang on the glass the entire time to get the guy to turn around, and he didn't stop till they went to a gas station. At least he wasn't in zombie makeup at that time. He was in his first stage makeup, I believe. I love the story of how the initial attack was so vicious because he managed to piss Rick Baker off instantly by damaging the wolf head. So Baker just beat the shit out of him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Baker seems like such a happy-go-lucky guy in all of his interviews. I believe his like his exact quote was, "The second he destroyed that head, he let me know how we were gonna be playing things that day." Oh God! That scene is especially uh, effective, though. To jump way back, uh, go <laughs> rewind, folks, later. Uh, but how 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 real the screams are? Considering oh, yeah. how jokey the movie can be, that is like a genuinely blood-curdling reaction to being mauled. Like that, that guy's really going for a realist approach on being killed by a rabid animal. Well, and divorce of context is pretty disturbing. Well, we've talked about in the past the uh, relationship between comedy and joke setup and a scare setup. Same basic thing. What, what uh, American Werewolf in London does... Um, is take all of the setup with the joke, but then throw the punchline in there as something horrific. So it's like in that scene, you have all of this joke build up to a punchline that's supposed to be a joke, and then a werewolf comes in and viciously mauls someone to death. <laughs> like you see that time and time again, kind of throughout the film, as you do these setups where there's supposed to be a joke at the end and then someone dies from a structural standpoint that's fascinating because you've essentially taken a comedy and replaced all of the punchlines with murders (laughs) I want to see a slasher movie with that setup (laughs) like it's an episode of friends but every time Chandler's about to say something someone's stabbed (laughs) it's Chandler stabbed every time it's Chandler (laughs) I feel like you could get pretty close to that if you just remove the laugh track from friends and just observe the awkward hateful silence between all the people when they make jokes at each other (laughs) I recently I recently rewatched a couple episodes of friends and dear god they're not friends those people hate each other (laughs) 
Are you talking about the cast members or the characters? The characters. Those characters. Those characters do not seem like they like each other at all. They're basically just putting up with each other, even when they're making out with each other, because I guess that's what they had to do all the time. It basically feels like, oh god, please murder me in this sex scene. Just, just kill me, stab me. Okay, to go on a brief tangent. That's fascinated me with sitcoms in general my entire life. I just American sitcoms are these weird windows into just these hellish existence where a bunch of white people in a part in an apartment to just scream at each other again and again and again forever. And all it takes is a laugh track for people to mistake this as oh no they're having fun. Like, like that one like a weird superficial band-aid fixes the whole thing. That fascinates me, because it's like this weird mass hypnosis. <laughs> no, Charlie Sheen making fun of his brother for being effeminate is the funniest thing you've ever seen, and not hateful. Uh, uh, let's just put it this way. Young Sheldon just scored, like, massive ratings. Like, I, I had double... I, had, I spat soup when I, when I saw the numbers. I couldn't believe it was that popular. Stop being surprised by what old people do. Uh, Question, everybody's recorders are still going, right? Because I just had to restart ours twice. Yeah. Correct. Okay, The commentary you are currently listening to is safe, folks. (laughs) Behind the magic. My editing time has now increased. By three years. I will say it would be hilarious if the commentary just stopped there and then you just put in dead air for the remainder of the the rest of the podcast is just like every version of Blue Moon that has ever existed, played back to back to back to back. F- finished by Werewolves of London, because that movie really should be in this movie. Or this song really should be in this movie. I can't believe it, it's not. It's always bizarre. Like, did they, did they just think that was too on the nose? Before we continue this conversation, I just want to apologize to the folks at home for any technical issues or sounds or anything that uh, could be going on, or if uh, this is slightly off track now. I'll do my best to fix it. Apologies. On the plus side, it's not like we've been uh, commenting on the backgrounds very much. So, <laughs> now, now we will. That's the fun part. Going back to the songs, I've always been fascinated that apparently um, Cat Stevens wouldn't give them moon shadow because he may believe in werewolves. <laughs> yeah, and apparently is... Bob Dylan's version of Blue Moon was thrown out because he was religious at that time. Which that's a weird thing. Well, it was because it was an R-rated movie, and he was a born-again Christian at the time. <laughs> Bob Dylan. <laughs> the Cat Stevens thing fascinates me, because wouldn't he want the word about werewolves to be <laughs> spread to warn people? No, yeah, no, we're assuming, we're assuming he isn't pro-werewolf. <laughs> oh, maybe he's mad oh, it's like dies people the with end. the gray. Like, I don't want this to turn people against werewolves so they'll stop hunting them. Right, exactly. He's sitting there like, man, werewolves, they're just people like you and me. I don't want a movie that vilifies werewolves. I want a movie where werewolves are good, upstanding members of society. I want to see that movie where it's just like Bear City, but with werewolves. (laughs) It's all about werewolf rights. Except for it gets really confusing and problematic at the end when they transform into werewolves in the full moon and they just devour all the innocent characters. Again, so it's just bear sex. <laughs> the entire, like, there's not a single lycanthropy scene the entire movie. It's just 
normal people campaigning for werewolf rights. The last five minutes, they become werewolves and kill everyone. That'd be a fun twist on a movie if they played it as like a weird mystery type thing the entire time. Like all the hints of a werewolf are there, but they never outright state it until like the last five minutes a character transforms, murders everyone, and then credits. Like they hid the fact that it's a werewolf movie until the very last minute. Or if there's like a surprise movie where the main character is like really charming, really dapper, and it's played as, you know, it's kind of like a romance or a romantic comedy or something. And in the last five minutes, he it's revealed that he's actually been Dracula the entire time, and he just rips the throat out of the main girl's, like, she he rips her throat out with the fangs and just what goes I, on a meaty killing spree. You what know why I that like? would never happen, MB? Like, there's no way that project would ever get off the ground because Dracula never wins. No studio would stand for it. We've gone over this there. He's won. We're not getting into this here. We're not doing <laughs> also, this. I'm not in the mood. Also, I just want to say you're actually not that far off from the ending of Mysterious Skin. <laughs> so, there actually is precedence, precedence here. I would like it if they did like a Jane Doe version of the werewolf movie. Like, corners come in, they just have a body torn to shreds. They're very confused. There's silver bullets all over the place. Also, yeah, so, no, it is very interesting. This film just throws out the silver bullet idea. Like, Landis had no interest in silver bullets being a part of this film. I think the cast kind asked of, it him about it. on the like, mythology. Like, oh, but David's not killed with a silver bullet. Fuck you. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Like, he still transforms with the moonlight, and he gets bit by a werewolf, becomes a werewolf. But most of the other mythology is just kind of ignored or thrown out. Children are the real monsters. Do you think they spent the entire budget of the movie on puffy vests, and that's why he wears that NYU shirt for a while, and then, like, it goes back and forth between him and her? I say I'm always amused that Landis decided in the middle of this movie, leading up to the transformation, to just do a British comedy. <laughs> like, let's just have a British comedy scene. I mean, that should be a problem in more werewolf movies. If you transform, you have no clothes. You're probably going to wake up in the middle of somewhere. Awkward. Probably not back at your apartment. More movies need werewolf movies where it's just a dude running around naked for like 10 minutes trying to find a way back home. Or just have the stretchy clothes that um, Benicio Del Toro had. I think in Twilight they got around it like characters would uh, uh, tie clothes to their legs. So when they transform, right, for them. they would they would they still have like a t-shirt on their on their foot. Well, that's always like the that kind of brings up the whole idea of like, but you're leaving so many things up to eventually go wrong. It's like when Spider-Man webs up his civilian clothes, goes to fight crime, goes back to the spot, and then finds that this clothes have been stolen. It's like there's so many things that could just. Werewolves cannot be a thing that you can prepare for, which I always find really hilarious because it's like there's so many movies and 
scenarios where they try to prepare for it, and then it always, always goes awry because you can't control it kind of thing. Can that be a werewolf movie, just a naked guy trying to get home? Directed by the opening credits is a horrifying... It's a horrifying werewolf movie. The rest of it is just nude run. (laughs) There's no resolution. The end of the movie is just the guy getting back to his house and then realizing he doesn't have his apartment key. So, uh, here's a question about this film. I want to get somebody's opinion on this. What what exactly do you take all of the um, pop culture as that Landis uh, really stuffed in there. Like, you see, especially in regards to childish things, like you, the Muppets, the the Disney stuff everywhere, but then, like, the apartment's filled with movie posters. There's, you know, obviously the TV thing was more of a culture shock sort of deal, but what, what do you take that? Like, what was, what would you say Landis was kind of doing there with all of that? Just stressing or something else? Wait. He really talks about uh, how the movie is just metaphor for, uh, like, puberty. So I, I think having all the childish stuff around there is just that hallmark, hey, this is a character who is becoming an adult. That's funny. I always kind of just took it as an acknowledgement that the Wolfman is something that's part of pop culture, like Mickey Mouse and Kermit the Frog. Like, this is some, in addition to somebody becoming this horrifying monster, somebody becoming a fixture of pop culture in his own weird way. And I think, like, with the, like, Casablanca poster, I think that's more of an acknowledgement of the time period that the Wolfman was made in without going overt and, like, having a universal horror movie poster in the background. Because I that would have been way too on the nose and too... This is a werewolf movie, and this is obviously predicting that this is going to be a werewolf movie. There's also the so great joke book- of uh, Mickey watching him horribly transform. Oh, yeah. I think the Casablanca poster in particular is just kind of an acknowledgement of old Hollywood and kind of the origins of this type of movie. I mean, there's the kid with the Laurel and Hardy comic book. I'm more curious about the interludes in like the children's ward of the hospital. We get two scenes in here, which and they're they, they're pointless. Yeah, they, they don't really connect to anything else in my mind. I mean, they're fine scenes. It's not like they killed. Oh, the they're movie or they're anything. good, but it's it's they give Jenny Auger something to do. It's just interesting. They're they don't serve any purpose. It's very weird. I think well, I don't know. I, Maybe let's say with the first scene, but with that scene, obviously, I think that's kind of to lull you into a very, very, very false sense of security right before the horrifying transformation scene happens. Where it's just something nice and something pleasant and something that has nothing to do with what's about to happen. Plus, you're saying something uh, violent in a jokey way and then cutting to us. Honestly, I thought they were just implying that the kid was causing all of this. He was. With his mental powers. Damn him. No. He will destroy all rivals to Alex's love. I can't wait for the sequel where he fights Drew Barrymore as the fire starter. <laughs> oh, God. Donald Duck is horrified. 
Uh-oh. Oh, boy. I think it says a lot that on the Blu-ray, the uh, portion of the documentary that covers this scene is roughly 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they this won them the Oscar, so that's a pretty big deal. That's an amazing thing to think. Rick Baker has a goddamn Oscar. It's amazing what can happen when you give talented people time and money. And God, they only had, what, six months to put this together? Like the entire film, effects-wise? Oh, that's my favorite part, him looking directly in the camera and asking the audience for help. <laughs> I'm a fan of the uh, I-didn't-mean-to-call-you-a-meatloaf line. Oh, it's so great. <laughs> a little aside. What's funny is, I would watch the whole movie if that was his final transformation. <laughs> Every stage of this looks terrifying and can just be the Wolfman for a movie. Oh, yeah. So, what what's your guys' thoughts on uh, types of werewolf? Are you a bigger fan of wolfmen who walk on two legs, or do you like uh, more wolfy wolfmen? I've never really liked wolfy wolfmen. I, I think, honestly, like, that's... And this is going to be probably very controversial among you <gasps> purists, but to me, it's more of an interesting visual when it ha retains the more humanity possible. Yeah. Oh, I because, agree. Most people because do. if you have just a dude running around who's you know head of a wolf, uh, kind of a body of a man, but it's like completely wolf, it just looks like it's a Photoshop of like an actual wolf. It just looks well, it, weird to me. It's just a big dog at that point. Yeah, this is <laughs> the only is movie scary, but... This is the only thing that's ever pulled it off. My favorite Wolfman look, which I've never seen pulled off in film, only in comic book, is the head of an actual wolf with the uh, body like of a half-wolf, half-man. Much like a Werewolf by Midnight. Or Werewolf by Moonlight, or whatever the hell that character is Werewolf by Night. Uh, I'm a big Werewolf fan of the uh, both the howling design and the dog soldiers design, which are very close, uh, closely related. Yeah, dog oh. soldiers is my number one for sure. I love what they were able to pull off on a low budget film. Like all oh, the yeah. money must have went into those suits. I think my preference in terms of like direct ones would be something along the lines of like I really like the remake of the Wolfman. I, I think that's oh, yeah. a really well done version of. Uh, werewolf and i also really i also like the scaled back ones a little bit too like they uh there's a classic universal monster movie that's actually the precursor to the wolfman uh the werewolf of london i think yes yes and that is I, a great design that, that design honestly is like the more classical one even more than the wolfman design from the uh, original Lon cheney version which is great and i love that but for me it's just like you can kind of see the face of the guy, and it kind of has, like, sort of a, a round, like, around his face is more the wolf part of it. And then he has kind of the elongated ears and then the jowls. And something about that is just effective to me. I don't know what it is, but it's just, it kind of, something in the midst of transformation is more powerful to me than something that's completely gone over to the other side like with this it's like it, it helps that it don't it isn't really shown that much whenever it cuts to the werewolf well it's 
when it has still maintains that humanity and the human face, it's an original monster at that point. I, I do appreciate what they did for the remake of The Wolfman, but there's just that one detail that always bothers me that the practical makeup means he can't close his mouth fully. Oh, yeah. And it yep, just, it just makes some drooling. Pretty much. Like, if they, they could cut around that, but there's just something see. about it where his mouth just looks like it's permanently kind of halfway open, and it just it just seems like a, a makeup effect that's not fully complete. Same thing with the, the original. Teeth, the teeth are a little bit weird. Uh, like, both with the original and with the remake version. But honestly, it's like... I think it's just something about the way, like... The combination of the way they color the skin mixed with how it blends into the hair is just such an interesting take on that. And uh, plus, I mean, it it's also just kind of speaks to the just how perfectly suited to those roles Lon Chaney Jr. and Benicio Del Toro both were as far as being these characters who just believably would have become Wolfman. Remember when they announced the Wolfman remake and there's a picture of Benicio Del Toro fake strangling Rick Baker? Yes. <laughs> and he already looked God perfect with no makeup on? He looked perfect. Like, yeah, don't do anything. Just film like this. That, that, that raises a good question. What is your preferred means of wolf murder? Biting, <laughs> clawing, or strangling? I know what Mike's is. Well, strangling, always. Her neck, just I have to so kill your neck. something so hilarious about, like, the build-up in the original Wolfman of just, like, he's looking and he's watching and, you know, his eyes are leering and she's coming, like, there's someone coming through the mist and then he, he leaps up and it, it's all animalistic and then he just goes I'm gonna get you <laughs> it's like the so... Solomon Grundy justice friends like I can pick you up hug you and toss you and that's that's it I can't throw punches <laughs> it's I like the implication that if a wolf could it would strangle you and everyone you <laughs> that would be its Thank first God I choice have these thumbs. <laughs> I think if I had to pick a way to be killed by a werewolf uh, and like a not wolf cop murder, uh, I, I would go with uh, claws. Those are the most impressive to me visually, where like a guy gets slashed across the stomach, spins around, all of his guts plop out. I like the dude at the beginning of the remake. Yeah, that was yeah, that was a great kill. That was a great way to start things. Enter the most British man in all of film. <laughs> in honestly, What's all this then? In honestly, this scene, as far as like the pure horror you can get out of a werewolf, it's hard to top from anything really. Like it's this movie has sort of two th two things that are hard to top when it comes to future werewolf films: transformation and this scene. Well, it's also really interesting because the entire time when I first saw this. All I can think of is like, okay, take out the werewolf, but then place in just a like a large animal, a large escaped animal, and have the scene play out exactly as it would, like if a tiger escaped from a zoo or something. It's still believable that that's a that's how this would go down, and that's just kind of that's what leads the most credence to the the sort of more wolf like wolf. Uh, werewolf. 
Well, it's once again where... that juxtaposition of the realism with that kind of old world stuff. Tone him down to just a wolf, and then it's like this rabbit escape animal. Yeah. So on a on a tech technical note here, I feel like my timelines might be a little screwed up, but I thought City Cam was pretty much widely popularized by The Shining, which came out in 1980. Uh, but they're using City Cam like that last shot when he's going up the escalator. That was Steady Cam. And in the making of feature as they talk about it with a fair amount of familiarity, it seemed like at the time, like they knew what they were doing. This came out like a year later. So either like Steady Cam became so popular that fast that everyone knew what they were doing, or it was around much longer than I thought. I think Steady Cam was around a bit longer than that. Yeah, no, I mean, if you like watch the stuff on The Shining, they famous. Yeah, if you watch yeah. stuff on The Shining, they talk about how they pioneered a lot of things with Steady Cam. They they kind of made it seem like that was a process they were originators of. Oh, yeah, I believe Kubrick already used Steadicam quite often. This is Landis's favorite shot. It's so it, this great. shot is the best thing Landis has ever directed. Like God, that is awesome. Stepping out like that. Also, can we talk about how hard that dude ate shit on that escalator? <laughs> To the point where Landis immediately called Cut and asked if he was okay. John Landis. Well, his uh, <laughs> shoelaces were undone, and you don't want to get that caught in an escalator because a kid died in the mall last year from that happening. <laughs> Did they ever see Final Destination 4? Like, come on, kids, get your shit together. You know what? All the stuff about werewolves and all that, like, escalators are the most dangerous thing in this movie. They really should just decommission every escalator. Those are those things are just terrible. I'm more of a stairs person myself. Exactly. And box office pulp doesn't approve of escalators or moving sidewalks or trampolines. Moving sidewalks and trampolines, I'm actually trampolines. I completely don't know where you got that, but moving (laughs) sidewalks, I'm I'm okay with you. You Cody's against Cody's against any surface that moves in any way. Ever since he was in that earthquake. But God, can they bring so back the, Can they bring back the final des the final destination franchise for just one more movie and make it about everything that ever had a local news scare story about it in the late nineties? The Alabama so Leprechaun. Just, yeah, that's who's instigating it. <laughs> Played I'm by Tony mad. Todd. Once upon a time, they promised us, like, oh, we're going to have two more Found Us Nation movies, like, going back to back to film, and Tony Todd's going to play a bigger part. And I was all excited, because, like, more Tony Todd's good. And uh, never happened. I would really love for them to finally explain what the fuck that character is doing at any particular point in that <laughs> franchise. Right? Like, is he a personification of death? Is, is he just in the know with death? Is he an angel of death? Is he just a weird, creepy guy who happens to coincidentally say things that make kind of sense with the plot? Why does he age backwards? Tony Todd, tell us your secrets. Same character from Hatchet, I always assumed. I recently found out that uh, a stretch is supposed to be in part three. Yes. I found that out recently as well. Lost my shit. (laughs) Can I just say this scene is horrifying out of context? What, a, a naked, naked man just stealing balloons from a small child? Being near a small child, 
offering him reward like no no just no it's okay it's the uk is legal there they'll give him a pound all right dirty deeds done dirt cheap i love how the zoo just looks like some kind of hellscape it really does because britain have you ever seen the weird ass poster? I think it was from like the British release that's just Naughton with the kid with like the the balloons naked. Oh, and then gosh. there's a werewolf crying in the background. <laughs> no, I have never it's seen that. It's a weird silent film. <laughs> it's a clown flipping pancakes. What a waste of money. Once again, I'd be fine if this was just the whole movie. It just morphs into with nail and eye at the end for some reason. Like the story about this where apparently the production staff was mooning these guys while they were filming. (laughs) Something weird about the fact that every time someone enters that apartment, Mickey is facing them. Like he's an entity of his own. Mickey knows more than he says. How tempted do you think Landis was to cut to the Mickey doll during the sex scene? I'm sure it's on the cutting room floor. It's weird to think he had to go to Disney and say, can I have a shot of a Mickey statue? (laughs) I'm surprised Disney said yes. So going back to something from like an hour and a half ago, we briefly talked about how long it took Landis to make the film sat on the shelf for about a decade, even though he kept bringing it up to people. Uh, my The story that I think sums up the tone of the movie and what the movie is better than anything else is when Landis pitched it to um, Albert Broccoli, because Landis uh, actually was an uncredited writer on The Spy Who Loved Me. So That's fascinating. When he, he pitched it to Broccoli and who Broccoli read it and just immediately said, hell no, it's weird. And that was that. <laughs> and nothing sums up this movie better than that. Hell no, it's weird. That must have been a hell of a read for, like, the early 60s. Because <laughs> this, this script was unchanged. Yeah, how would they ever do the werewolf effects? But, uh, yeah, I love that even though Landis got the money to make this film, because, like, his last three pictures before it were all really successful, even then the studio was like, oh, God, what is this? Is this horror? Is this comedy? I like that they approved it, even though they thought it was just a mistake. Like, fuck, okay, let's make this guy happy. Here, do your stupid picture. They had some during that miracle age where you could just get any movie made. I think they shrunk the budget the last minute, though he still managed to come in under budget somehow. (laughs) 
Now, you asked like how they were going to pull off the uh, werewolf effects that early on. If, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it always going to be Rick Baker? Yep. Yeah. Because that like they met on like Landis's first movie. Well, yeah, I, I was on uh, Schlock, right? Yep. And ironically, Baker, uh, like Landis getting Baker on board super early is essentially what led to Rob Botton doing the howling because Baker got fed up with waiting but wanted to do werewolf effects, so he signed on to the howling. <laughs> but the exact same time, Landis finally got funding to do American Werewolf and called him up. It was and was like really pissed off because like, but we were gonna do our werewolf movie. Why are you and doing you're this taking other it werewolf to Dante? Movie? So <laughs> Baker put his protege Rob Botton in charge of the Howling, where he would just kind of supervise. And that's that like a magical year where you get Rob Botton werewolf transformation and Rick Baker werewolf transformation. <laughs> Do you think at any point during this production, Baker was just sitting alone, like making casts of people's faces, thinking, nobody's going to see this movie. <laughs> I could have done the howling. The howling. That thing's going to be huge. <laughs> God, there's going to be so many sequels. I could be doing prep work for your sister as a werewolf right now. Or part six. Oh, yeah, the Howlings franchise is weirdly still going, isn't it? I believe so. Yeah, it's... There's a, there's a couple of those, like Children of the Corn's getting a new one. Uh, there's a new Chucky movie coming out this month. Like, there's some of those franchises that will just never die. Also, David, you could just punch the cop and he'll arrest you. <laughs> That's how that works. I love how... Just depressing all of the weather is. It's almost like they're filming in London or something. Which I believe was a Landis-specific thing. Like, no, we have to film when the weather is worst. But once again, is that juxtaposition where you have every... Like, when people are acting really cheery, the weather is utter shit. Like, it's the weather for a very depressing horror film that you'd expect out of a normal werewolf film, but then it's uh, the manic energy of this, but everything is dreary and gray. It's always fascinated me how this movie has so much John Landis DNA, but looks absolutely nothing like anything else John Landis did. Yeah. Again, like... Both because of the change of location, the change of style, and just because the obligation to only hire British people meant he didn't have any of his guys on here. Oh god, could you imagine the alternate version of this with Belushi? The studio did want Ackroyd and Belushi. What I want to know is which one would be Jack. I think Ackroyd. No, 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 it was Belushi. Yeah. 
Could you imagine zombie Belushi just eating a giant sub? Um, <laughs> yeah, like Belushi is put in the makeup, but pieces of pizza are falling out of the wounds. <laughs> Why is it just Slimer? <laughs> Ever talk to a ghost? It's boring. And then he bursts through a wall. He appears as a samurai character. It's weird to think the movie's about over. And it's also really taken the hard bright into just, okay, not even incidental comedy now. It's just straight serious drama horror. Yeah, this scene is fucking great. One of my favorite scenes in the film. And it's just one actor, which is, I think, really a testament to this performance. Like, it's really heart-wrenching, but at the same time, they don't overdo it, they don't underplay it, it's just the perfect kind of tone. It's just it's the perfect, just, they, they hit the exact dial that they need to as far as the level of emotion, but at the same time, the kind of seriousness and the fact that he knows that he's about to kind of, he's about to kill himself, so. Yeah, there's something... Uh, very, very important in Landis's casting decision because David Naughton isn't an actor. Actor, like he's, he doesn't have this overpowering stage presence. Like he just responds to everything like a normal dude. Yeah, yeah, because Landis just pulled him from a Dr Pepper commercial because he just wanted a dude. And that works for this film perfectly because he is so smaller than life, just like Cheney Jr. was. Because one thing that I, I noticed with uh, Naughton and the guy who plays Jack was that had this been made a couple years later, this might have been Downey and Anthony Michael Hall. <laughs> that is an amazing thought. And I can't imagine them pulling off the same underplay as these two do. Like I don't, I don't feel like they would play it as realistically. There would be something very actory about their performances, and we give the film its own sort of weirder flavor. Whereas this, I, I think you're right in that the way that they cast this really informs just how everything kind of plays out and how the tone actually plays out and how the scripted moments actually do land. Because if you did get more and like get actual like big actors, it just wouldn't, it would be as broccoli said, just no, it's weird. <laughs> Johnny Depp also, is hello. the Wolfman. Also, hello, Kennison. <laughs> So my favorite production photo in all of Hollywood history is 70s Landis standing shoulder to shoulder with all of the naked porn actors just <laughs> grinning. <laughs> hey. I've never seen you before in my life. Oh, goodbye. <laughs> Who's been having fun on those couple of days when they filmed these? The there's nothing better than an 80s puppet skeleton moving its head back and forth. 
Like there's yeah, something specific so about magical? the movement. Yeah, it's it's. I miss puppet skeletons so much. So do I. That unique brand of special effect. Meanwhile, if there was a remake, as you know, Landis's own son wants to do, this would just be a way lesser effect, as well as the werewolf stuff, and it just wouldn't have. I mean, obviously, it wouldn't be as believable, but it also just wouldn't have the same charm. It never ceases to amaze me how much special effects, like practical special effects, that technically look worse and less realistic than CGI are more believable. Like, like I say a hundred times, like there's just something about something physically being there that is impossible to recapture. Yeah. Also, this is one of my favorite scenes in all of cinema, and I'm not exaggerating. (laughs) Just all of the blood-covered British people and their various different takes on the Wolfman. And once again, very British as well. Blood-covered British people sounds like a fantastic punk band. It does. And this guy is just so done. (laughs) He is not having fun being a corpse. At least the other guys seem like they're okay with it, kind of. Not the hobos as much, but these guys. I love that couple so much. I I just love how Landis presents all the dead people in this scene. Uh, Almost something out of a Greek play. Like, there's kind of a series of tropes and stereotypes at play here that's really interesting to me. It is is kind of like... It's weirdly, like, something that would be one of the more humorous scenes out of, like, a Shakespeare sonnet or something. Like, you expect this in, like, Midsummer's Night's Dream tonally in terms of, like, okay, something that is kind of ridiculous, but at the same time is just kind of macabre and just straddles the line. And there's no acknowledgement of that within the scene itself. It's just kind of... So I, I just love how indignant the hobos are. <laughs> Fuck you, enjoying, we have good lives. They're enjoying their life around the fire can. They're all, they're all so cheery about this. I know where I can, where you can get a gun. I, I, would, I just want to see that movie. <laughs> I feel like the couple were just happy to die. They were fine anywhere. They were happy to get so, out of that dinner they were going to. They have a wacky spinoff where they go to heaven. So you think the original Wolfman, uh, who was killed on the Moors, also had a bunch of people who were following him around? You would have to assume. Yeah, but they were all like vi- like small village British people, so that's going to be brutal. At least David gets big city folk. <laughs> That's almost like Landis is trying to say werewolf transformation is like an erection. <laughs> I just want to know, like, did this guy just want to party? I've always been very confused <laughs> by this nightmare man who shows up. <laughs> Fucking lurch. 
Oh, those nails oh. look so painful. Can I join in? A non-stop orgy. Also, correct me if I'm wrong. That's the orderly, isn't it? I think so. I, I don't know. I don't think so. Maze looks similar. I love... 70s Piccadilly Circus as opposed to 70s Times Square where I assume Landis would have been shot if he tried to film this. Oh yeah. Or just also, filleted in front of everyone. Or it also would have been impossible to get anything done because literally it would have just been mounds and mounds of trash everywhere. And needles. Dude, that, that's always fascinated me that London has its own Times Square, which had all the same crap as old time as the old Times Square in New York, but it looked so clean and tidy because British. And it was a big god that shot at the wolf is so awesome, and it was a big fucking deal they got to film there, and it's all because Landis bribed the police with a film with the with a screening of Blues Brothers. <laughs> well, that doesn't get him nothing, Will. I also like that apparently they didn't have a permit for the car crash, but they just kind of figured, eh, screw it, we can clean this up quick. Pretty much, they were filming I'm... so late. I believe uh, the exact quote from the police was, you cleaned up that car crash faster than we can clean up the real ones. <laughs> Which was horrifying to hear. Now look at our funny hats. Whoop, 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 whoop. Seriously, I feel like if I bopped them on the head with one of their own nightsticks, they'd like shrink down and they'd just be like a cap and two feet. That would scurry away. <laughs> By the way, the outtake of that head hitting the hood and then flying away, where it's the entire shot and there's just a dude waiting for the longest time, it hits and he's like, huh? Funniest goddamn thing in the world. Like, just... <laughs> Out. Like, there's a reason that's a close-up. There's a, a great behind-the-scenes bit of that, too, where Landis was... Work, fucking Landis working with... Uh, also, that's Landis going through the glass there. Um, oh. Or, La like, working with a British crew, Landis said, like, okay, then pick pick up his head and throw it across the, uh, the hood of the car. And the crew just stared at him. Until finally Landis walked over, picked up the head, and threw it across the hood of the car. And they went, oh, you meant Bonnet. <laughs> so there was a cultural clash even behind the scenes. An American director in London. <laughs> I want to see someone, like, that's the ultimate like antithesis of this movie. Someone gradually turning into John Landis. No! The same transformation scene. Oh, his dear beard gets, like, more luscious. The glasses form around your face un unwillingly. God, I'm jealous of Landis's beard. That is an incredible beard. So I love how the finale of this film essentially revolves around a really big car accident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more people are killed by car accidents than the werewolf. 
And the werewolf literally just gets stuck in an alley. Uh... By its own volition, it just walks down an alleyway and gets cornered. And like they don't even use the love interest to draw the the werewolf out where they can shoot it. Like she's just there, kind of in the way. (laughs) She prolongs the ending by about three seconds. This really is the most werewolf ending to a werewolf movie ever. Like he doesn't even die coolly. (laughs) It just peters out and he dies a loser. I would I would love to see this go on for another five minutes to just have them explain like, well, we had 30 men shoot a wolf and now it's a man. We were all wrong. It was a man the whole time. Or just like square that with the board. Pretty much. Yeah. Like I I would like to see how the, the loops people would go through to make sense of this. It's like the headline of uh, that would appear of like local cops shoot prankster who was in wolf costume. Bat Boy Returns kind of thing. It's weird to think that Jenny Augeter and Dr. British MD then had to live out the rest of their lives knowing that this happened to them one week. (laughs) I'm always fascinated by that with movie characters. Like, what are the other 48 years like? (laughs) Uh, avoiding the moors at all costs and uh, the moon they beware the moon hashtag bop beware's the moon uh, you're gonna start up one of these days folks you know it I, I just want a follow up scene of Alex taking a guy home sitting him down in her bed and saying I've had eight lovers in my life <laughs> three of them are one night stands one of them was the Wolfman of London. <laughs> dun, I don't dun, normally do this. Dun, 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 dun. No, he was so cute. Why do I imagine John Landis was filming that and laughing his ass off at her crying? <laughs> Your tears only make me stronger. <laughs> like, I really imagine that was what he was doing as he was filming that. Like, hey, hey yes, yes. It's also a great, like, I was talking earlier about the, um, all the horror bits kind of having the reverse setup of setting up a joke and then replacing the joke punchline with a scare at the last minute. That's actually the exact opposite. (laughs) Like, you do the horrific thing and then just abruptly cut to this. (laughs) It's so dancey. I say I, I love, love that the porn crew had names. I was just about to say that. <laughs> My favorite touch of the credits is the very, very end where they just advertise Universal Studio tours. <laughs> Come on down, folks. They're fun. Do it. And say thank you to Prince, <laughs> Princess Don. <laughs> On behalf of Lycanthrope Films. And ask for Babs. I have to say, the last time I went to Universal Studios, I stood in line for one of the tours. It was about, like, 108 degrees. It took about an hour to get inside. And I don't know, folks. I don't know if, I don't know if it was worth the wait. <laughs> Steve Johnson. They weren't filming a Terminator movie at all. I was, I was hoping for a little bit more out of the Jaws section, to be honest. But uh, what are you going to do? Ah, uh, the Jaws section. 
which apparently has now been replaced so they could build in more Harry Potter stuff, which yeah, that's sad. really sad. And that's I, I'm I'm still bitter about them getting rid of the Back to the Future ride. Yeah. What's that going to be? Harry Potter's Ocean Adventure? No, they replaced it with a Hogwarts Express ride, I think. So, like, the train takes you from one section of the park to the other. Right, so they replaced a legitimate attraction with a vehicle to get you from one Harry Potter thing to the next Harry Potter thing. That's my understanding of it. I haven't been there since they put it in. Uh, so I don't know. That's just what I read online. I'm assuming that's the case because the yep. Harry Potter section is fantastically popular. So they they want to expand it, and they only have so much room. At, at this point, the entire park's become Harry Potter within like the next year. Get rid of a fucking be, historical staple for that. It's a bummer, but the Harry Potter stuff is really cool. No one's doubting it, but it's like there's already a giant thing. <laughs> they should, yeah. If they they should just like build a brand new theme park somewhere. Just for Harry Potter, make it as big as they need to. I love how we're ending this commentary as an extension of the final shot of the film, which is to say that maybe not go to Universal Studios because they've changed a lot since the '80s. No, there's, there's no. I would still recommend Universal Studios. It's a lot of fun. There's cool stuff at Universal Studios. Better than Disney. I've never been to Disney. I, I would really like to do the Haunted Mansion, but Universal's like cool. I like Universal. Mansion. I'm a fan right? of Epcot. Seems fun. Epcot's pretty cool. It's fun to walk around the different countries. You can just walk around the Epcot Center and think this was going to be Walt Disney's future world, where he was going to be God. I think this commentary's. Um, I think it probably should end now. And then, as you're walking through the Epcot, you're attacked by a werewolf. Oh. Oh. And you become John Landis. Credits. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. Our post credit stinger is us telling you to go listen to all the other shows on the Pulp Podcast Network. We have Graphic Novelism, which just released a epic two-part episode chronicling the history and production of Batman the Animated Series. We have Box... Well, this is Box... <laughs> <laughs> okay, the show, I'll the show do you're it. listening to. We listening. have Supergirl Power Hour, Graphic Novelism, Hercules versus the Podcast, I guess... Pulp Nightmare. We have all kinds of shows, and if you'd like to listen to them, where you can also find links to them on Facebook and iTunes and Stitcher, go to pulppodcastnetwork.wordpress.com. As for Box Office Pulp, the podcast you are currently listening to, hopefully you knew that. If not, spoilers, spoilers, this has been Box Office Pulp the entire time. Ah, scream. Anyway, we are on iTunes, we are on Stitcher. If you like the show, please rate and review us. Give us stars. Uh, you can also follow along with us on Twitter and on Facebook. That's at Box Office Pulp and Facebook.com slash Box Office Pulp Podcast. And, of course, the website is boxofficepulp.blogspot.com. That should about do it, folks. It's been a pleasure having you. Get the hell out of here, and happy Halloween. Oh, and stay off the moors.
This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.